Shabbat Shalom, everyone. All right, let's go ahead and open up in prayer with you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for my family here. I thank you so much for the Sabbath and everything that you give us. Um, Lord, please guide me as I, I teach the congregation today. Please help it to be edifying to your body and to be glorifying to you and your kingdom. Yeshua is blessed in the name I pray. Amen. All right, let me go ahead and get set up here. Um, if you guys will bear with me, I have been sick for the past few days. Um, I'm still kind of getting over it. Uh, but Baruch Hashem, I'm, I'm doing just fine. Um, had to go get a COVID test yesterday for, uh, for work. They, they wouldn't let me back. Um, came back negative, which is good. But I wish I kind of you know, took it maybe a few days later. So I didn't have to but it's okay. <laughs> so let me go ahead and just get set up here. is named Korach, which is a crazy one. There are uh, so many things to explore and take away from this one. Now, for a quick recap of uh, last week's Torah Parsha that Jeremy taught, this is a great, great teaching. I need to go back and actually listen to it and take some notes for sure. Uh, I hope it's, it, was it recorded? It was, okay, good deal. All right, so um, with that, there's a, a little, um, uh, this, is what, this is what happened. So uh, Moses sent spies into the promised land and the spies came back with a great report and said that it was indeed the land flowing with milk and honey. They even brought back a huge cluster of grapes, some pomegranates, and figs to prove it. But then the spies also warned that the land is large, greatly fortified, and filled with giants and warriors more powerful than they are, and that there was no way that they could conquer it. Man, they were kind of faithless, right? So uh, Joshua and Caleb insisted that the land could indeed be conquered just as God had commanded, because he was with them and not with those in Canaan in that land, just as they didn't rebel against him. Uh, with the people's faith dwindling, as lo- uh, with the people's faith dwindling, even after witnessing amazing miracles, an uproar of murmuring, accusations, and violence against Moses, Joshua, and Caleb spread like a wildfire. The glory of God intervenes, and he threatens to annihilate the faithless people, but Moses intercedes on their behalf. They are spared, but they are disciplined by a sentence of wandering 40 years in the desert, something they probably didn't want to hear. Uh, That is not all. With Joshua and Caleb exempt from this punishment, everyone included in the uh, census over the age 20 that grumbled would die in the desert and not be allowed into the land. And then they followed God's commandments and lived happily ever after. No, no, that's not how it went. <laughs> All right. Well, Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, 23 says, For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. The message of today's Torah portion was very convicting if you are someone like me that used to rebel against every authority in life. I did not want to be told what to do or how to do it. And I used to loathe correction and discipline. It didn't matter if it was God or my parents or a police officer or my, my boss. It didn't matter. 
I was full of rebellion. And if you would ask my mom, she would have told you in a very like Irish accent that was full of shenanigans. You know, <laughs> she's American. She doesn't have an Irish accent. But anyways, uh, so um, I was just so so just arrogant and full of it. And I would argue with my mother all the time over things, regardless if they were important or seemingly insignificant. Uh, this is kind of a picture I could draw for you guys. So I would be like on the way out of a room during, like the, during the peak of an argument, and she would say something like, boy, Patrick, you always have to have the last word, don't you? And then in my arrogance, I'd be all the way out of the room. I would come back, keep my head in, and say, no, I don't, and then walk off. That, I was that bad. I was that bad. But this is the woman that gave birth to me, who protected me, who took care of me, and who made tremendous sacrifices for me and my three sisters so that we could be homeschooled in a God-fearing household and hopefully be shielded from the influence of rebellion running rampant in the world. But it, it, it found its way in. And I brought shame on myself for not honoring her and uh, most of all God, as I should have. You know something interesting that I'm coming to realize that the, the older I get, the older I get, the smarter my parents are, right? <laughs> Very interesting correlation there. Well, I have a uh, question for you guys. Where did rebellion originate? Anyone want to take a whack at that? See, I used to think that too, but it actually goes far, a little bit farther back there. So it started in the heavenly realm. It all started with an, uh, with an archangel sealed with perfection, full of wisdom and beauty that wanted the likeness and authority and worship of the one who created him. Find this in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. This came from him looking at himself and wanting a higher position than that of the one who put him there. Pure jealousy. The kind of jealousy that led to his rebellion that also caused a uh, third of the angels to be thrown down from heaven with him. We are going to read a story today about a Levite that fell into this exact model of rebellion during the time that the children of uh, Israel were wandering in the desert, in the wilderness. A model of jealousy, conspiring with others, rising up against authority, and ultimate, ultimately losing his great God-ordained position and suffering the consequences. All right, well, let me see. It's perfect. All right, so this is uh, this week's core portion, portion outline. So it starts with Korah's rebellion, and it goes on to Moses summoning, summoning uh, Dathan and Abiram. Elohim responds and miraculously destroys the malcontents. The Israelites protest and a plague breaks out among the Israelites. Moses intercedes again on behalf of the Israelites. A miraculous confirmation of Aaron's priesthood, the budding rod. It's a beautiful story right there. And the fear of Elohim falls on the Israelites and a new respect for the tabernacle is established. Aaron's responsibility is reconfirmed and the gifts to the Kohanim and tithes to the Levites. Now this week's Torah, sorry, uh, this week's uh, Hebrew word is Korah. The, same, the, the name Korach means baldness, to make, uh, to make bald, or ice. These meanings imply a lack of fertility or uh, growth, just as hair doesn't grow on a bald head or like vegetation from ice. So the uh, word Korach also represents more of like a self-centered uh, lack of growth. Some of the sages note that his name suggests the taking of evil. That is, the man is govern, governed by an entirely self-centered existence. So today I have three critical questions for you guys to ponder while we go through this lesson. The first one, who establishes authority? 
The second one, why should we submit to authority? And thirdly, uh, are we, can we be justified in rebelling against authority? Just, just make sure that we think about these things. All right, well, we'll go ahead and start in the, in the, uh, the Torah reading. So we'll start in chapter uh, 16 of Numbers. We'll go through 17. if I sound like this at any time. I'm still kind of getting over it. <laughs> All right, chapter 16. Now Korah, the son of Yitzar, the son of Kahat, the son of Levi, along with Dayton and Abiram, and the sons of Eliav and On, and the son of Pelech, descendants of Rehavim, took men and rebelled against Moshe. Siding with them were 250 men of Israel, leaders of the community, key members of the council, matter of reputation. They assembled themselves against Adonai, uh, sorry, against Moshe and Aaron, and said to them, you take too much on yourselves. Why do you lift yourselves up above Adonai's assembly? When Moshe heard this, he fell on his face. And then he said to Korach and his whole group, in the morning, Adonai will show you who are his and who is the holy person who will allow to approach him. Yes, he will bring whomever he chooses near to himself. Take, do this. Take censers, Korak, and all your group. Put fire in them. Put incense on them before Adonai tomorrow. The one whom Adonai chooses will be the one who is holy. It is you, sons of Levi, who are taking too much on yourselves. Then Moshe said to Korak, Listen here, you sons of Levi. Is it for you a mere trifle that the God of Israel has separated you from the community of Israel to bring you close to himself so that you can do the work in the tabernacle of Adonai and stand before the community serving them? He has brought you close, and all your brothers, you sons of Levi, with you. Now you want the office of Kohen, too? That's why you and your group have uh, gathered together against Adonai. After all, what is Aaron that you complain against him? So in other words, is it for you a mere trifle? Is it such as insignificant? Is it for you such a small little thing that God has not only made you set apart, but made you set apart from the set apart? Making you, you know, uh, help, giving you the... Um, the opportunity to serve in the tabernacle? And what is Aaron that you complain against him? My, my brother, he's not the one calling him the shots, right? So going on into uh, verse 12, then Moshe sent to summon Dayton and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, but they replied, we won't come up. Is it for you, is it such a mere trifle bringing us up from the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert that now you arrogate to yourself the role of dictator over us? Whew, let's stop there for a second. What a slap in the face. They're calling Egypt the land flowing with milk and honey and not the land that God has promised. That's, that's a slap in the face to God there. You haven't at all brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. You haven't brought, put us in possession of fields and vineyards. Do you think you can gouge out these men's eyes and blind them? We won't come up. Moshe was very angry and said to Adonai, don't accept, accept their grain offering. I haven't taken one donkey from them. I have done nothing wrong to any of them. Moshe said to Korach, you and your group, be there before Adonai tomorrow. You, they, and Aaron. Each man take his fire pan, put incense on it. Every one of you brings before Adonai his fire pan, 250 fire pans. You two and Aaron, each one, his fire pan. Each man took his fire pan, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moshe and Aaron. Korach assembled all the group who were against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
when the glory of Adonai appeared to the whole assembly. Adonai said to Moshe and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly. I am going to de destroy them right now. They fell on their faces and said, O oh God, God of the spirits of all mankind, humankind, if one person sins, are you going to be angry with the entire assembly? Adonai answered Moshe, tell the assembly to move away from the homes of Korah, Dayton, and Abiram. Moshe got up and went to Dayton and Abiram, and the leaders of Israel followed him. There he said to the assembly, leave the tents of these wicked men. Don't touch anything that belongs to them, or you may be swept up in all their sins. So they moved away from all the area where Korah, Dayton, and Abiram went. Then uh, Dayton and Abiram came out and stood at the entrance of their tents with their sons, wives, and little ones. Moshe said, here's how you will know that Adonai has sent me to do all these things, and that I haven't done them out of my own ambition. If these men die a natural death, like other people, always sharing the fate common to all humanity, then Adonai has not sent me. But if Adonai does something new, if the ground opens up and swallows them with everything they own, and they go down alive to Sheol, then you will understand that these men have had contempt for Adonai. The moment he finished speaking, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households. All the people that sided with Korok and everything they owned. So they and everything they owned went down alive to Sheol, to the grave. The earth closed over them, and their existence in the community ceased. All Israel fled around them at their shrieks, shouting, the earth might swallow us too. Then fire came out from Adonai, destroying the 250 men that had offered incense. So right now, Israel, they are losing their minds. They're not sure what's going on. Um, all, they, all they're sure of is that people are getting cooked to a crisp and that the, the earth is opening up and people are falling in and there's just total chaos going right, uh, on right now. And then we'll continue in, in chapter 17. Adonai said to Moshe, tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen, to remove the fire pans from the fire and scatter the smoldering coals at a distance because they have become holy. Also, the fire pans of these men, whose sin cost them their lives, have become holy because they were offered before Adonai. Therefore, have them hammered into plates to cover the altar. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. Eleazar the Kohen took the brass fire pans, which the men had been burned to death had offered, and they hammered them into a covering for the altar to remind the people of Israel that an ordinary person, not descended from Aaron, is not to approach uh, and burn incense before Adonai. If he wants to obey, uh, avoid the fate of Korah and his group, as Adonai has said to him through Moshe. But the very next day, the whole community of Israel complained against Moshe and Aaron, you have killed Adonai's people. However, as the community was assembling against Moshe and Aaron, they looked in the direction of the tent meeting and saw a cloud cover it and the glory of Adonai appear. Moshe and Aaron went to the tent, came to the tent, the front of the tent of meeting. Adonai said to Moshe, get away from this assembly and I will destroy them at once. But they fell on their faces. Moshe and Aaron, take your fire pan and put fire from the altar in it, lay incense on it, and hurry with it to the assembly to make atonement for them, because anger has gone out from Adonai, and the plague has already begun. Aaron took it, as Moshe had said, and ran into the middle of the assembly. There the plague had already begun among the people, but he added incense and made atonement for the people. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. 
those dying from the plague numbered 14,700, besides those who died in the Korah incident. Aaron returned to Moshe at the, the entrance to the tent of meeting, and the plague was stopped. Adonai said to Moshe, speak to the people of Israel and take from them staffs. One staff, uh, one, uh, take from them staffs, one for each ancestral tribe, from each leader of the tribe, 12 staffs. Write each man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for each, leader, each tribe's leader is to have only one staff. Put them in the tent of the meeting, a uh, tent of meeting in front of the testimony, where I will meet with you. The staff of the man who I'm going to choose will sprout buds. In this way, I will put a stop to the complaints of the, that the people of Israel keep making against you. Moshe spoke to the people of Israel, and all their leaders gave him staffs, one for each leader, according to their ancestral tribes, twelve staffs. Aaron's staff was among their staffs. Moshe put the staffs before Adonai in the tent of testimony. The next day, Moshe went into the tent of testimony, and there he saw Aaron's staff for the house of Levi had budded. It had sprouted not only buds, but flowers and ripe almonds as well. Moshe brought out all the staffs from before Adonai to the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took back his staff. Adonai said to Moshe, Return Aaron's staff to its place in front of the testimony, uh, and keep it there as a sign to the rebels, so that they will stop grumbling against me and thus not die. Moshe did this. He did as Adonai had ordered him. So the, uh, the rest of the Torah portion goes over God reconfirming the re responsibilities of the uh, Kohanim and the priest and uh, the tithes to the Levites. Now, last year, my dad, Adrian, uh, taught on this Torah por portion, and he focused on the aspect that God chooses who he will bring close to himself and under what protocol uh, he would allow one to do so. Now, under these protocols or instructions we read here in the Torah, it says that in order to be a priest in the tabernacle, you not only have to be of the tribe of Levi, but you also have to be a descendant or son of Aaron. With that being said, uh, all Kohanim were Levites, but not all Levites were, were Kohanim. Now, let's zoom in on the man of the hour, Korach. Uh, who, who knows who Korach is? Anyone? Was a cousin of Moshe and Aaron. Absolutely. First cousin. First, that's right. First cousin. Do we do we know anything else about him? Anything? Well, he was a Levite. And he was a Levite. That's right. Now I have this handy dandy chart here for you that that like charts. Now Korah was the cousin of Moses and a well-respected Kohathite who was given the honor to be one of the carriers of the holy ark. Though he was given this great privilege, he was not satisfied and wanted more. It is said that Clark rationalized that he could be that he should be the uh, head of the Kohathite clan instead of his cousin Elzaphan, since he was the firstborn of Kohath's second son, whereas Elzaphan wasn't even a firstborn son in the first place. Because he felt slighted by Moses' choice of Elzaphan, Clark went further and brazenly questioned whether the office of high priest should have been given to him rather than Aaron. So we can see here how it kind of goes down. So it comes down to Levi. So Levi has his three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And it goes down, and then Father Kohath had many sons, and many sons have Father Kohath. So you have Emron, Isar, Hebron, and Uziel. And you see Korach is right, right here. So he's the firstborn of the secondborn son of Kohath. And then we go all the way down here, and Moses chooses the clan leader, Elzaphan. But he's the secondborn and the fourthborn. So you can kind of see why 
And you know, in that culture, uh, the, you know, second born for it, 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 the the pecking order is really, really um, emphasized in that culture. So you can see why he was kind of upset about it, a little more than upset, you'd say. It's just amazing how the, you know, to see how a little spark causes a big wildfire. Now let's go back to those questions I had asked you guys earlier. So, who establishes authority? Why should we submit to authority? And can we be justified in rebelling against authority? I believe that we can find some of the answers in Romans chapter 13. Uh, let's open our Bibles there and read what it has to say about the chapter. It reads, everyone is to obey the governing authorities, for there is no authority that is not from God, and the existing authorities have been placed where they are by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities is resisting what God has instituted, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are no good, uh, sorry, <laughs> for rulers are no terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you like to be unafraid of the person in authority? Then simply do what is good, and you will win his approval. For he is God's servant, there for your benefit. But if you do what is wrong, be afraid, because it is not for nothing that he holds the power of the sword, for he is God's servant, there as an adventure to punish wrongdoers. Another reason to obey, besides fear of punishment, is for the sake of the conscience. This is why you also must pay taxes, for the authorities are God's public officials, constantly attending to the duties, to these duties. Pay everyone what he is owed. If you owe a tax collector, pay your taxes. If you owe a revenue collector, pay your revenue. If you owe someone respect, pay him respect. If you owe, uh, if you owe someone honor, pay him honor. Don't owe anyone to, uh, anything to anyone, except to love one another, for whoever loves his fellow fellow human being has fulfilled the Torah. For the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't, uh, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, and any others uh, that are summed up in this one rule. And any others are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not do harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fullness of Torah. Besides all this, you know at what point of history we stand, so it is high time for you to rouse yourselves up from sleep, for the final, final deliverance is closer than that than we first came, when we first came to trust. The night is almost over, and the day is almost here. So let us put aside our deeds of darkness and arm ourselves with weapons of light. Let us live properly, as people do in the daytime. Not partying, getting drunk, engaging in sexual immorality and other excesses, not quarreling and getting, being jealous. Instead, clothe your, yourselves with the Lord Yeshua the Messiah and don't waste your time thinking about how to provide for the sinful desires of your old nature. So, um, by the way, when Paul was writing this uh, to the church in Rome, the, uh, the emperor of Rome, Nero, was having believers and others uh, doused in tar, crucified, and then used as human tiki torches to light up the night sky in his garden parties for entertainment. So that's the kind of rule that was going on over there, just to give you a kind of a, um, a frame of reference on, on what they were facing. Now, 
after reading this, can, let, let's see if we can kind of apply some of this to those, those questions I have. So let's go back. There we go. Well, there's the first answer. That, that's a freebie there. So who establishes authority? God establishes authority. That's right. It says, for there is no authority that is not from God, and the existing authorities have been placed where they are by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities is resisting what God has instituted, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. All right, so we have the first one there. How about the second? Why should we submit to the authorities? Because God established it, and if we don't, that's right, because God has established it as such, and we will be, we will be, we will be judged for, uh, for such. So it says here in verse 5, it says, To avoid the threat of punishment and also the matter of the conscious, the, the conscious resting assured that you did the right thing or made the right choice, you know, peace of mind, which many would say is priceless. Now how about three? Can we, does it say anything about how we can be justified in rebelling against authority? It, it doesn't here. But there are so many examples through, all throughout the Bible of something called civil disobedience that, that we see over and over again. Um, do we have any examples in the room uh, that you guys can think of of anyone civilly disobedient, uh, disobedient to governing authorities? Well, people that you know are protesting against abortion, for example, that might be an example. You know, rebelling because of conscience. Absolutely, that's a good one. But uh, how about uh, any in the Bible that we have? Oh. Um, that's a good one, though. Uh, that's right, and I actually have that that reference right here. So we have uh, one example in Exodus chapter one: the Hebrew midwives didn't kill the uh, little Hebrew baby boys, as the king of Egypt had commanded them to do so, because they were God-fearing women. And it says later that God even blessed them for doing so. And then uh, we have, yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3 thrown into the blazing hot furnace because they didn't, you know, fall down and worship that, that uh, golden statue that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had erected. And then not even three chapters later, we have Daniel thrown into the lion, not lion's den, uh, because he was caught praying next to his window directly after a law had been made that no one pray to anyone else but King Darius for 30 days. And uh, he was definitely set up in that story, if, if you know what I mean. Now, these acts of civil disobedience have passed, uh, but there are definitely more, more to come in our, in our lives. In the book of Revelation, it is written about the beast that it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All who live on earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slaughtered. It goes on later in the chapter, and it was given to him to breathe to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause all that do not worship him, the image of the beast, to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he decrees that no one will be able to buy or sell, except for the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast, or the number of his name. In the next chapter it reads, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his measure. And he will be tormented day and night 
with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Yeshua. And the smoke of their torment will ascend forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark in his name, where this here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Yeshua. So with, with these examples, are, do we have, uh, are we kind of putting together a pattern here? Do, do we see a pattern at all? Of course. So the pattern is these that have obeyed the authorities in these examples have done so not to disobey God's commandments. So these that have disobeyed the authorities have done so not to disobey God. I think Peter and the, uh, the apostles in Acts 5, they, they said it best. Um, it's so simple and, and just clear. Um, it was when they were being uh, interrogated by the Sanhedrin, and better yet, the high priest in front of the Sanhedrin, for going against their order to preach in the name of Yeshua. It reads, but, the Peter, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God has exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom he has given to those who obey him. So what can we determine from these examples? Can we, can we be justified in rebelling against authority? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let's go ahead and just go run through these questions one more time. So who establishes authority? God. God, that's right. And why should we submit to authority? To avoid punishment for the sake of conscience. To avoid punishment for the sake of conscience. To rest assured that you did the right thing. You made it easy for us, right? And then thirdly, we have here, can we be justified in rebelling against the authorities? Of course, when the law of man conflicts with God's law, the righteous will follow God's law. Now, Everyone, like I mentioned earlier, learning about this story was very convicting to me because I used to rebel against every authority in life. We must have faith that God has placed those over us there for our own good. Don't be a Korok. Children, submit to your parents. Obey your parents. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to God. And let everyone be gov uh, submit to the governing authorities because God has placed them there. This is his will and his design. Yeshua came down from heaven not to do his own will, but that of his father's. You know, it's, it's one thing if someone in authority is lying or blaspheming or, or leading other, others astray, but to rebel simply because we are prideful or filled with jealousy, that is some great shaky, uh, shaky ground to stand on. And uh, the earth might just be, you know, about to open up its mouth under you and, and swallow you. Now... I'm sure we can all relate to how tedious low speed limits are, having a demanding boss, having to obey laws that make no sense to us, or being subject to authority that seems unfit at times, simply wicked and having no regard for truth. But as followers of Yeshua Messiah, we are called to Shema, hear and obey, and be a light to the world, and to be above reproach. A life of obedience to our Father is a blessed one. When we are faced with any dis uh, discontentment and feel like rebelling against someone who has been put in a place of authority, we must check it then and there and make sure that we are not embodying the spirit of Korah. All right. 
That's all I got there. <laughs> so don't be a Cora. Just remember that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Does uh, anyone have any questions? I'll act like I know the answer. It's not really a question. It's a comment. That other lesson that I take from all of this, and we talked about this some last night, is people, young people, children, adults, be careful who you listen to. Absolutely. Be careful who you surround your life with. If you're not wise and you're not careful about the, the friends, the people that you call friends, they can lead you down into the pit, literally. Absolutely. And many times throughout this this story, he says, get away from this wicked assembly, get away from them. So yeah, you know, they, they say that you are who you hang around with, you are your influences, and that is so true. Um, and that's why you want to surround yourself with, with God-fearing people. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the, the secret sauce. <laughs> it's not so secret. Just make sure that you're, you have a good, good people around you. Same here. This is this is my family right here. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh yes, Martin. Yes. That's right, and um, you know that, that's why. I mean, if they were if they were true believers, and I'm sure. I mean, I, I lived in Germany most of my life, and uh, I knew people that were uh, Nazis and were related to them, and I talked to them about it. And uh, they were, I mean, they were just within our town, and I used to go sit in our bakery and, and, and talk to them. It was just kind of that old guy that was just hanging around, and uh, and uh, yeah, I, I remember very specifically he had told me that he he was like drafted, I, I forgot how it worked with the, the German government. I think if you were of age, you were just put into yeah. two arms. And he said he didn't want to do it, but he, he was forced to do a lot of things. And I, at the time, I didn't ask this question, but I was thinking it, um, like, why didn't you just not do it? And, um, you know, it's, he just went against that little, that consciousness, that, that, that uh, you know, we're, we're, we're made in his image. We, we have that, you know, we're different from animals. We, we can think and reason, and we have the Torah written on our hearts. And he just bypassed it, and he did, you know, whatever he had done. So, yeah, I think, I think it's just easier to, uh, or I think we should just focus on God. And uh, you can't go wrong with that, for sure. Any other questions? Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, oh yes, the sons of Korak. Because not all Koraks, um, all his, his sons, they, they, they didn't all die. A few of them actually lived and, and went on. They went on to write 50 plus psalms. Oh, that's really. So they went on to write 50 plus psalms. And I think they, there, was one, uh, there was one written about uh, Korak. It was something about, do, do you remember, Gabe? It was something about how he went into the depths. Um, I, should have, I should bring that one up. Uh, so it speaks about redemption and restoration. It speaks about redemption and, and restoration. Yeah. Oh, yes, ma'am.
that's right. I mean, he's a just God. That's why he punishes. He punishes those that he loves. And um, so, so when Ms. Jackie had just said that, all throughout Numbers, we see the people of Israel rebelling over and over again, and then they have punishment, and then over and over again, they just don't learn their lesson. And I mean, I mean, we are so much like that, aren't we? We just sometimes we, uh, we're just, uh, we just, love, I guess we love punishment or something. I don't know. We just keep on going for it. But a slow learners, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like, uh, I like Adrian's uh, uh, advice. It's if you're gonna be dumb, you gotta be tough, and. Uh, <laughs> must be kind of tough. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I have a, a thought to add to this story portion. Um, you know, two things kind of, I talked on last week in Uganda at Beth Yeshua over there, how Moses repeatedly, when he's challenged in his authority and his calling, he doesn't blow up his chest and defend his honor. The very first thing that he does is fall on his face. And he recognizes that he's nothing, really. He's a nobody. And I was challenging the, the folks at Beth Yeshua in Uganda to look at leaders that way. When you're selecting a leader or a teacher or someone to be in authority over you, are they the type of person that when they are challenged, they fall on their face? Or are they the type of person to take personal offense and bow up their chest and get very defensive over their character and their reputation? We should be looking for people who have the propensity to fall on their face and call them leaders, call them teachers, um, and put them over us. Uh, so we've talked about that, but if you look, I think there's three or four or five times, if I'm not mistaken, where Moses does that. He falls in his face over and over and over, which is kind of counterintuitive to what we think about what a leader should do. Um, like if you see that, you're like, why? You just fell on the ground. Why did he do that? You know, supposed to defend himself. Um, and then secondly, how many of you are in some kind of, or maybe have been in some kind of leadership position, either at work or in business or school? Yeah. What's interesting about Korah is that we have no direct quotation from Korah. If you look at read the Torah portion, there's never a verse that says, and Korah said. Korah always goes around and he, uh, he works the crowd. And then the crowd comes to, to Moses and then challenges Moses' authority. How many of you who raised your hand when you were in leadership, when you were criticized over something you did or a way in which you led, you, that criticism was directly from somebody? It's rare if you think about it. It usually comes indirectly through other people who were told something about you from the person like Korah. In other words, rebellion is like witchcraft. And that rebellion and that witchcraft usually operates under a degree of cowardice. In other words, Korah was too much of a coward to go face to face to Moses himself and say, Moses, I think you're not appointed to do this. I don't think that you have the right authority to do this. But instead, Korah and his cowardice goes around to other people and says, hey, what do you think about this Moses guy? You think he's taking on too much of himself? Do you think he's really worthy to be doing this? You know, and, and so some of the sharpest criticisms you receive as a leader will come indirectly from people when the source of it is someone who's operating under a high degree of cowardice themselves. So in those moments and in those times of people criticizing the leader, which the leader always gets criticized, that would, that's just a, a fact of life, um, uh, fall on your face before God and acknowledge that he is sovereign over you. He is king and you're a nobody. 
And it'll always work out in your favor if you do that. Because, I mean, what's to argue with that? You know, just fall on your face. Um, and it's something I'm learning to do as well. I'd love to piggyback off of that. So the, God's, uh, God is selfless, right? That's his, his character, selfless love, right? And so this, this behavior we see with Moses, Moses falling on his face when he's confronted, instead of, you know, getting all big and it's like, hey, hey, no, I'm, I'm the charge, you know? That is such a selfless thing. And um, we see that behavior, um, it's very Yeshua-like, because when Yeshua was confronted, what did he do? He didn't go yelling at people. He didn't go charging at them, except for I mean, one time with the courts in the, the courtyard, but that was a little different. But when he was confronted, um, you know, he he never defended himself. He was the, the lamb led to slaughter, and he, he trusted God and he, he prayed continuously uh, in the spirit. So that's something that we definitely need to emulate in our own lives and, and not take things personally. Because when you take things personally, that's when the self is present, and we are we are. You're just just be a vessel, just empty yourself of yourself, get that pride and just boot it out the door so you can be filled with the spirit. And uh, I, was talking, uh, I was talking with a few gentlemen over here at the Oneg table uh, last week, and uh, we, were, we were talking on the subject of race. And um, one was asked, you know, what would you do if you were called a, a racial slur? And he, he just looked up and he gave the most beautiful, simple, uh, answer. He said, I would pray for them. Right? He didn't say, oh, I would say, oh, you know, this is, he said, I would pray for them. And that's what we should do when we, we are confronted. Pray for the, that person. Because Moses recognized how heavy, like, how bad this was starting to get when he, when he had heard these accusations against him. Because these, this group, they knew very well. They had to have known that God was speaking to to Moses, that he was, he was his, uh, his prophet. So, anyways, just take, always take it to God. You, like like Gabe said, you can never go wrong with, with talking to God about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Any other questions before we do Kish and the blessings of Kish? That scripture that you read, I think it was in Romans, about idolatry as the sin of witchcraft and idolatry. Mm-hmm. So, when you are criticizing somebody that God has put in that position, like Moses and the people, they are actually trying, obviously they're criticizing God, but they're, it is idolatry because they're trying to be God in their own life. That's right. That's the, the message of the, the world is to be your own God. Exactly. You know? Cool. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Excellent. All right. You guys appreciate Patrick doing such a good job teaching with one portion. I know he worked hard on it. And there's, just, there's a special blessing that comes along with teaching the Torah, uh, you know, even our master Yeshua says that whoever does and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of God. But in addition to that, there's this double-edged sword. There's also a higher level of, of, of uh, examination that comes with teaching the Torah. And James talks about not all of you should be teachers. Um, so I think Patrick embodies a person who is able and qualified to teach and did a great job. So thank you.